we are uh, beginning a brand new series of messages today, and I'll explain that to you in, in just a moment. I want to just say a quick word of thanks to all of our teams. We had teams working hard this week to transform our auditorium. Can we give it up for our production team and our, our location teams for transforming this space? We love you. Uh, one thing you got to know about our church is that our church doesn't happen because of the talents of a few people, but it's really the sacrifices of many people. And so I just want to say thank you for serving and thank you for moving the mission of Jesus forward. If I haven't had a chance to meet you personally, I'm Pastor Justin, and together with my wife Marissa, we get the privilege of leading this great church, and we really are so honored that you're here. And I want to tell you, if you enjoy the worship today, we're doing a worship night tonight at 6.30. And... Um, I talked a little bit about worship last week, and I just want to encourage you, even if you would say, I don't, I don't know that, that worship is my thing. Well, as a Christian, you don't get the option. Like, like <laughs> worship is part of what we're called to do, and there's something about the seeking that matters. When we worship God, when we seek Him, it reminds us that God is what we need. I know you might have a lot of needs in your life. You might be here and you're thinking about a, a relationship going on. You're thinking about a decision for the future. You're thinking about you know, maybe a financial situation. And you think, PJ, I got a lot of needs in my life. But let me tell you, God is really what you need. And so when we come to worship him, it's our opportunity to remind ourselves that God is what we need. And something happens, something unlocks when we worship God that doesn't happen any other way. And so I want to encourage you to come out. I've been praying and really, I'm expectant that God is going to do something powerful in the life of our church and in the, the lives of everybody who comes. We're going to have worship. We're going to have baptisms. We're going to pray. And it's really going to be a powerful time. I'm going to share a little bit. I'll have a special message. But it's going to be a powerful time. And in this series, uh, The Table, what we're going to be doing is looking at some tables to get a picture of God's purpose for the church. I don't know if you know this or not, but... Over and over again throughout Scripture, this image of a table is used to describe the way that you and I are supposed to commune with God. In fact, over 80 times in Scripture, you see this word, the table, maybe the one of the most significant ones up front that we see in the Old Testament is a, a piece of furniture called the table of showbread or the table of presents. Maybe you've heard of that before. It was a piece of furniture in the tabernacle and also in the temple. And this table of presents, table of showbread, it, it would have, I don't know, maybe looked similar to this table. It had very specific dimensions that it was supposed to be. It was also supposed to be overlaid in gold. And then on top of this table, there was some bread that was placed. And the bread had to be made with some specific ingredients. The bread also uh, had to be made a certain way and presented a certain way. And the reason for that bread was to paint a picture that all of us have a spiritual hunger and God is the only one who can provide that nourishment, who can meet that need, who can provide that hunger. That's the table of showbread. Of course, you move on a little bit further you get into the Psalms, we see a, a very uh, recognizable table mentioned in the Psalms, and that is in Psalm 23 where David is speaking, he wrote that Psalm, and he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul, it goes on, 
all these different things. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. A table. You go on a little bit further, you read in Malachi. Malachi was a prophet. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi talks about the Lord's table, and the, the table we see there is the picture of an altar. It's called the table of the Lord, and the table of the Lord that Malachi is talking about is where they would offer sacrifices to God. These sacrifices that they would, that they would offer, uh, Malachi says that you've been doing wrong because you've treated the Lord's table as if it's not important. They were offering sacrifices, but they, they, they weren't really bringing their best. What they were doing is they would take, you know, whatever they could do without, whatever animals they didn't really need, the, the ones that were kind of lame and that really wouldn't amount to much anyway, that's what they were offering to God. And Malachi said that you're, you're paying a price because of it, because you're treating this table as something that's not important. You get to the New Testament, we meet Jesus. Jesus is called the son of a carpenter. We learn that. And you can imagine he probably built a table or two. And beyond that, he also, we see him in the New Testament, would be sitting at, tab- at tables where he was often criticized because he would eat with sinners and eat with the prostitutes. And a lot of people didn't like that. They had a, a problem with that. More importantly, though, we see him reclining at a table with the disciples. And it was at that table where he would solidify who he was in the lives of the disciples. He would really impart his mission. And ultimately, you get to Revelation, and Jesus mentioned this too. We, we see that when Jesus comes again, and he will return, that on that day, there's going to be a celebration. And at that party, all of us will be sitting at a table with Jesus, celebrating what he's done and what's happened on the earth. Aren't you glad for that party? Isn't that good? Well, it's no surprise then that throughout church history, we see this image of a table being closely related to the picture of the church. Really, to understand the gospel, you have to understand that you have been invited to a meal. Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verse 35. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The gospel is best understood in the context of a meal. And really, to understand the message of the gospel and the church is to recognize that you've been invited to come to the table. That's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you from this topic, come to the table. That's a phrase we say a lot at our house. Do you ever say that at your house? Probably not. If you don't have kids, that would be awkward, just talking to yourself. But at our house, we have four children, four rapscallions, and uh, it's, this is like an everyday occurrence. I'm hollering, come 
to the table. We have three levels in our house. We have a basement, a main floor, and upstairs. And for the longest time, it was like a 20-minute ordeal just to get our kids to come to the table. Since then, I have wised up. I've learned a thing or two. I've gotten smarter. I've strategized. And I've, I've placed an Alexa inside every room of the house. And now, I don't know if you know this, this is a pro tip for a parent. All I have to say when I want my kids to come to the dinner table is I just say, Alexa, announce, come to the table. And she will announce all through the, and I hope if you're watching online that your Alexa is going off right now. I'm just going to say it again. <laughs> Alexa, announce dinner time. And what happens when you do this is Alexa will ring this dinner bell and it, it sounds all throughout the house. It's gotten so much better. What used to take 30 minutes is now, you know, only taken five minutes to finally get my kids. What's funny, though, is these Alexas that we had, uh, they were all throughout our house, and I had one in my office. And there was this one time where Marissa was announcing that it was dinner time, and there was somebody in my office, and they were like, I wonder what's for dinner, so they could talk back. Since then, I've taken care of that. But it really is a picture of the gospel that we've all been invited to come to the table. And you might think that that message has just gone, you know, to you and the people you know, but it's gone so much further than you can even imagine. And even though, you know, what's behind me may not necessarily be what we think of as a feast, throughout church history, these elements, the bread, the wine, have been central to Christian worship. You know, we've got a worship night tonight, uh, but what's interesting is in Scripture, there's really, even church liturgy, church history, there's not really a, a liturgy that we find in the Bible or church history. Liturgy, if you don't know what that means, liturgy is just a, a word means a formula for worship or an order for worship. Like we have an order of service where, you know, we sing some songs and then we have a moment of prayer and worship, and then we'll pray again at the end. Well, that would be our, our liturgy. It's a formal order of worship. You don't find that in Scripture, really even in church history, but what you do find is that there were some essential elements of worship, both in the Bible and church history. One of the things we know the early church did in their worship service was they celebrated baptism. Now, we're going to be celebrating baptism tonight, and we're or have that during our, our worship night. Baptism was a big deal to the early church. It, it wasn't just something that person did on their own. It wasn't just something between them and Jesus. It was something the whole church got in on because they recognized what it meant, that this person is going from death to life. This person is leaving a lot behind. This person is coming in. That talks about in Scripture how they were added to the church those who were baptized and being saved. So baptism was a big deal that the whole church gathered around and celebrated. We also know that in the early church worship, they prioritized the gathering. It would have been inconceivable for the early church Christians to think that you would be worshiping God just on your own, that you would be a Christian and just, I don't need to go to church. I'm, you know, I live my life. I love the Lord that would not have even been in their mind. They prioritize the gathering. One thing we know about the, the gathering that they prioritized is that they did it on Sunday. Now, there were lots of reasons for that, but the main reason was because Sunday was the day 
that Jesus rose from the dead. So when they gathered on the first day of the week, what they were saying is just like Jesus got up from the grave, we recognize that his resurrection power is in us, that we've been raised to new life in Christ. So they prioritized the gathering. They did that on Sunday. And then some other elements we know. We, we know that they read scripture or they, they shared theological instruction, training. And so it's you know, similar to what we do. It's, it's important to know that, that scripture would be read and then how to live by it. And then from that, they would pray some prayers they would sing some psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Again, there's not like an order, but we know that these were elements that they followed. But within all of this, there, there's a central theme of table that, that was prioritized and seen throughout all of their worship. The bread the wine, the Lord's table. Now, what it does happen in church history is it's been given different names. And so sometimes we see it called the Eucharist. Eucharist is a Greek word for Thanksgiving. That just means when Jesus instituted this meal, he was observing Passover with his disciples, the first thing we see is that he took the bread, blessed it, or gave thanks for it, same thing, and then he said, this is my body, it's for you. Blessed it, broke it, he gave thanks for it. So it's called the Eucharist because we, we come and we give thanks the same way that Jesus did. But we also give thanks because we recognize that when Jesus died on the cross and got up from the grave, Scripture says he gave gifts unto men. And one of the most appropriate things you can do is say thank you when you've received a gift. So that's why it's called the Eucharist. Other times in Scripture, and this is how we often refer to it at our church, it's how I typically refer to it, we call it communion. And here's why. It's, it's found in 1 Corinthians 10, and I don't think I have the Scripture for them on the screen, but I'll read it to you. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, Paul's writing to the church. He says, the cup of blessing that we give thanks for, it is blessing and thanks, the cup of blessing that we give thanks for, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? So what Paul's saying is, when we receive of this cup, when we receive of this bread, we are partaking of the divine nature of God. We are sharing in that very real presence and very real life and you see him go on says when we share in the breaking of bread that's another thing that this meal this table was often called it's we see it in acts where it says the the people who were being saved they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the breaking of bread that's not just a euphemism for we're going to have a meal together that's talking about the lord's table then probably the, the most important or our most familiar one is the Lord's Supper. We, we say that because Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he was observing Passover with his disciples. That's called the Last Supper because that was the moment where he instituted that this should be done in his remembrance. We call it the Lord's Supper. 
All of these things are appropriate and have their meaning, but all of them are referring to the table. And I want to use today where we're kicking off this series of the table to talk to you about the Lord's table because I'm thinking there may be people here, you've been coming to church here for a while, and typically on the first Sunday of the month, we receive communion together as a body of believers, and nobody has ever explained to you, why do I have this little cup, and why do I have this little cracker wafer, and what does this mean to me? Now, one of the changes that we made at the beginning of the year is we don't just make communion available on one Sunday of the month. We've actually made it available every Sunday. Every time you come, we may not corporately receive it, but it's always available to you to you can grab it as you come in or you can just excuse yourself during worship and go and grab it so you can receive it. Interestingly, scripture doesn't talk about how often you should observe communion. It just says that you should do it often. And so whether it's once a month or whether it's occasionally, the main thing is, whether it's once a week, the main thing is, is that we do it often. And we see this in Scripture. The earliest example we have of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, that might seem kind of funny that I say the earliest example is 1 Corinthians when we know that Jesus instituted it at Passover in the Gospels. But what might be interesting to know is that 1 Corinthians was written before the Gospels. 1 Corinthians was written in 50 A.D. The Gospel of Mark, the earliest gospel, was written around 60 A.D. We talked about this in our Bible Basics series. The reason this is important is because I want you to know that the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the practices of Jesus were already in the mind share, were already being observed, were already known the moment that the resurrection happened. It wasn't like Mark wrote the gospel 30 years after Jesus died and rose again. These things were already being talked about and shared. What Mark did is he collected everything, he collated everything, he corroborated everything, and he edited it and made sure that what we had was the things that the Holy Spirit was, uh, wanted in Scripture. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is writing, and he says this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Let me stop right there for a moment. In other words, he's saying, what I'm sharing with you came directly from Jesus. This is not something that I made up. It's not a custom that started later on. Again, this was written before the gospel. He's saying, I received this from the Lord. So whether he received it via revelation by Jesus or whether he's just saying, this came, this isn't from me, this is from Jesus and I'm giving it to you, what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says that in the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Those words in remembrance of me stuck out to me this week as I was preparing this message because I've been doing this for a while, being a pastor and leading people in communion. What I found is often we don't do it in 
remembrance of Jesus, I think sometimes what happens is we do it in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. Here's what I mean. I've met a lot of people when we approach communion, sometimes we can feel unworthy. Sometimes we can feel shame because we're coming up to this moment and we're thinking about all the times where we've missed it. All the times where we've fallen short. All all the times where we messed up, where we've sinned, and we come to the table, and we're not doing it in remembrance of Jesus, we're doing it in remembrance of me, and we're feeling very unworthy. Now, I want you to understand that discouragement comes to all of us. None of us are immune to it. If you are in this room breathing, you will be met by discouragement. It happens. Circumstances happen. Sometimes expectations aren't met. It's definitely happened to me. And in times where we're faced with discouragement or situations or we begin to have doubts and frustrations, anxiety and worries and fears about the future, one of the things I've found that's been very helpful, I've received from communion. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. I can remember a specific situation where I was, I, I was stressed. I had concerns about what the future held. I didn't know what to do with decisions that I was going to make. I didn't know how things were going to turn out. And I really felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to begin to remember what Jesus has done. So I took out my phone. And I started making a list of everything that God has done in me, everything that God has done for me, and everything that God has done through me. Just begin to list it out. I remember the first time I heard God's voice in a really clear and powerful way. I was 17 years old. I was living in France at the time. I was unsure what I was going to do in the future. I was going to school. I had one plan for my life, but I was uncertain. And I remember reading scripture, I remember hearing God's voice, not audibly, just on the inside. God spoke to me and he called me into the ministry in that moment. It was a very powerful moment. It was a very clarifying moment. And what that did is so many of the decisions that I had where I was like, what about this and what about this? It brought clarity in that moment and I knew how to move forward. I remember that. I remember following Jesus and I remember when I met my wife. You better believe if I'm talking about how God has been faithful in the past and things he's done in me, through me, and for me, that my wife would be at the top of the list. And I remember how he brought us together and what he's done in our relationship and how she encouraged me and even helped shape and talking about our, our future and all of those things. I remember that. I remember being in Thailand and we were going to start a children's home and, and being there and and not knowing people, not having contacts, just going with a mission and a vision to start this. And God connected the dots and brought people across our path and connected us with the church and connected us with a woman who had been praying for a job who was able to be the mother of this children's home. And I remember not only how God answered my prayer, but how we were able to be the answer to somebody else's prayer. I remember when God called us to plant this church and how I had no idea what it was going to look like or how we were going to do it or raise the funds or any of those things, but we stepped out in faith and came here and God provided miraculously while we were here. And I remember how he brought the right people. And I remember 
things from getting this building to moving locations to team to hires to all these different things to simple things. I remember when God protected me. I remember when my car got T-boned and it got smashed and it got totaled, but there was not a scratch on me, how, how God kept me safe. I remember those things. And what happens when you remember Jesus, you remember his faithfulness, it gives you faith for the future. Many times we, we come to the Lord's table thinking about all the stuff going on in our life and how is this going to work out. And Jesus says, I want you to come to the table in remembrance of me. Remember what I've done for you. Obviously, remember what he's done for us personally, but we also remember what he did for us at the cross. He says in the very next verse, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, many times we hear that and uh, we think about the Lord's death and because the way we are feeling sorrowful, we, we think about this as a somber moment. Now, let me say, we can be reverent and we can be repentant. I'm going to talk about how to approach God's table, but... You know, proclaim generally. You don't generally proclaim bad news. You don't generally proclaim sad news, unless you're my daughter and you're talking about how life is miserable. Everything is so bad right now. I don't want to go to school. No. Generally, we don't proclaim bad news. We proclaim good news. So he says, when you do this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. What's that mean? Well, you know, when Jesus died... It looked like the end, but really it was the beginning. Jesus' death is really about his resurrection. When, when he died, it was a statement that he had conquered death, hell, sin, and the grave. And whatever's dead in your life can come to life through the resurrection power of Jesus. When, when you proclaim the Lord's death, what you're doing is you're proclaiming God's victory over every situation in your life. And what I'm trying to help you see is that the Lord's table was not a table of sorrow. It was a table of celebration. That They were having a good time. This would have been joyful. This would have been thankful. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for what you did on the cross. I thank you for how you've been faithful in the past. I thank you for what you're going to do in the future. They were celebrating. In fact, that's why Paul has to write to them because they were celebrating a little too much. They were getting drunk off the wine and they were not handling it appropriately. So he says, I got to bring some order to this. Let me tell you how I received it. It is a time to remember and it is a time to proclaim. It's not something to be sorrowful. So let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about the bread. What is meant by the bread? When Jesus was with his disciples, which he said, by the way, I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. Something that he was looking forward to. It says that he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. But he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's I give it to you. 
when we think of Jesus' body, we think maybe how he took the stripes on his back. Think about how he was nailed to the cross. One of the things we think about with his life, though, is that he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. Truth is, none of us can say that. Not a person in this room. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's standard. Every single one of us has missed the mark at some point. But when we recognize that Jesus' body was broken for us, what we're recognizing is that he lived a perfect life of obedience. And that through him going to the cross and being broken, that this is actually how God sees us. That God doesn't see us broken. That through Jesus' brokenness, we're made to be whole. That the places where you've missed it, he says, no, Jesus was broken for you so that you could be made whole. You don't approach God out of all the places that you've missed it. You don't approach God out of all the places that you fall short. You approach God made whole. His body was broken for you. Let's talk about the wine. Jesus said, this cup, this wine is my blood. Now, I know that's kind of gruesome to think about, but there's something special about the blood. Of course, we know in Passover, they were to, the first Passover, they were to take the lamb, shed its blood, put it on the doorpost. It was a sign of covering, a sign of protection. The houses that were covered by the blood were protected from death. What's interesting, though, to me is generally when we think of blood or even wine, grape juice for that matter, uh, we think about how when it touches something, it stains it. Jesus' blood is different. Jesus' blood in 1 John 1.7, it says that there's something special about the blood of Jesus. Well, let me read it to you. 1 John 1.7, it says that if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, it's not just a covering of the blood, it's a cleansing of the blood. When you're covered by the blood of Jesus, what it's saying is that every sin, every stain, every shame has now been washed clean. This blood doesn't stain, it cleanses. You've been, when you take the cup, you're saying, I've been washed by the blood. I've been covered by the blood. Interestingly enough, it makes me think about how we are to come to the table. Because like I said, you know, with four kids, it is chaos at our house, especially around dinner time. And they come to the table in all sorts of inappropriate ways. I'm just glad when they have clothes on half the time. <laughs> but they come and they're dirty, and I don't know where their hands have been. They've got cheese it crumbs all over their face and in their hair and 
their hands are sticky with what I hope is fruit snacks, but I don't really know. I don't ask the questions. I just have a command. I say, hey, before you come to the table, you got to wash your hands. You got to wash your hands. Now, why is that? Am I being mean? Am I like just trying to put them down? Maybe trying to establish some order, right? We have some manners, but we don't wear hats at the table at our house. Like, it's just one of our rules. There's certain ways you're supposed to come. But the reason I tell them to wash their hands is because if they don't, we know medically, right, that what should be nourishing the food, that what should be healing, that what should be strength could actually hurt them if they come to the table in an unclean way. Scripture calls it an unworthy way. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, Paul wrote, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. It's interesting, interesting if you read on, he actually says, because there's people that are coming in an unworthy way, they're actually bringing judgment upon themselves that they're getting sick they're weak some people have died because they're not coming to the table appropriately now it sounds really serious it is serious what we partake of every week have the opportunity to every week it is something serious but it's meant to help you it's meant to bring healing to you. It's meant to bring strength to you. So how do you approach God, not in an unworthy way, come to the table, but in a, a worthy way? Well, one of the first questions I would say is you need to examine yourself. And this is where we, we do look in. We, we're introspective and say, is there some stuff that's in me that I need to be purified from? I think about when my kids come to the table, you know, one of the ways they can come to the table wrong is if they've been snacking they've been eating a bunch of stuff and then they come to the table and they're not hungry sometimes I wonder maybe just be introspective is is there been is there a bunch of things that I've been filling up on that that is taking the the place of where I'm supposed to get my strength and where I'm supposed to get my my nourishment so you examine yourself is there anything in me the communion table, the Lord's table, it's your opportunity to be purified from those things that have been filling your heart. It's your opportunity to get clean. So if you find something, you examine it, you can repent of it, you can say, Lord, cleanse me. I think there's power in the confession. Not I think, I know. There's power in the confession. When you find something in your heart that you need to repent of, I would encourage you, to say it out loud. I'm not telling you you need to say it for everybody to hear it, but there's power in confession. And before you receive the cup, before you break the bread, you say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Name that thing. The reason that matters, that same place that where John wrote, we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, he goes on in the next verse, 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
So you confess it. But the main thing he's talking about is, is people who are coming who, who didn't believe. And so that would be the question I would ask you is, when you come to the table, are you believing? Are you believing in what Jesus did for you? Are you trusting Jesus? Now, our last series, we talked about leading second. We talked about being a follower of Christ. But don't get it twisted. Faith in Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. And faith in Jesus is very, very simple. There's things you have to do to be a follower of Christ, but faith in Jesus, we don't need to overcomplicate it. It's so simple. It's have you placed your faith in what Jesus did at the cross? Are you trusting in him for salvation? Have you repented of your sin? Scripture tells us that when we believe in our heart and we confess with our mouth that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, that he didn't stay dead, but he got up from the grave, that's how we're saved. It's not magic words, it is faith-filled words. And in that moment, the life of God comes into you. So are you trusting in Jesus? Maybe the, the question I would ask to follow up, if you would say, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not believing. I'm not trusting. The next question I would say is, are you willing to? Are you willing to now? If you're willing to now, then you can receive from the Lord's table. What happens lots of times, though, is many of us, because we were familiar with the ritual and we're familiar with Scripture, sometimes we stop short. What I love about this, it is one of the few places in Scripture where our faith is visible. You know, Scripture talks about we walk by faith, not by sight. But the Lord's table is one of the few places where you handle the bread. You taste the wine. Reminds me of what the psalmist said, Psalm 34, 8. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the one who trusts in him? This is one of the few moments where you don't just walk by faith, you do, but you taste and see. It makes me think about, recently I was in New York City, I was visiting a friend, and uh, he wanted to take me to this nice restaurant. I mean, a bougie restaurant, crazy restaurant, you know. Michelin-style restaurant. And we went to this place, had a great vibe. The lights were kind of low. The music was, was vibing, you know. They bring out the menu. They bring out the water. I look over the menu. Man, I can tell they've got some great stuff. You know what I didn't do at that moment? I didn't say, I'm good. I've been in the place. I've seen the menu. A lot of us do that, though, as Christians. Wouldn't it be a shame to know what's on the menu but not experience the meal? I know the Bible. I come to church. 
The Lord's table is an opportunity to experience the very real presence of Jesus in your life. That's why sometimes when you take it, you might feel something. That's not just goosebumps. That's not just the atmosphere. There is, it is mystical in the way it's described in Scripture, even a mystery. But the very real presence of Jesus is available when you receive from the Lord's table. 